0: Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia,
1: and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... I already had a a sense of uh, incentive to find the answer to some of these questions. Uh, There were other things driving me besides the next publication. Jose Fernandez on how to take an economic approach to studying societal
0: topics like health, suicides, autism, and more. Jose Fernandez is an economist. He's also the chair of the economics department at the University of Louisville. And he has an unusually eclectic body of work. I'd say that more than maybe any other economist I know, his economics career has been devoted to researching topics that he has deep personal connections to. And so I wanted both to discuss his research itself because his findings on topics like autism, suicide, and health are themselves fascinating and important, And I also wanted to talk to him about how he's navigated a career in which he has chosen topics that are so personal to him, rather than topics, for example, that are in vogue or topics that would have maybe allowed him to rise up the ladder more quickly. Here's why. How economists choose which topics to research, which questions to answer, helps determine what the rest of us end up learning about the world. And as you'll hear Jose explain, Economics academia still runs on this kind of publish or perish model. So if you are doing research that gets published in the big economics journals, then you'll get promoted and someday maybe you'll get tenure. And if not, you won't. Plus, economics and the way that economists get published still has too much of a kind of insidery club mentality, which Jose also explains in our chat. So it is worth scrutinizing the kinds of research that end up being incentivized by this model. So Jose and I talk about that, and we also get into some of Jose's own work that I found especially intriguing. A quick word before we start, we do discuss the topic of suicide in this episode. So if thoughts of suicide are something that you have struggled with, or if a discussion of the topic may bring you distress for any reason, then this might be an episode to skip. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, and it is free. And now, my conversation with Jose Fernandez. Jose Fernandez, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thank you, Carter, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Is your kind of career in economics an unusual one, a rare one, in that you do have this personal connection to uh, or this personal motivation for pursuing so much of your research agenda and the papers that you choose to publish? It is rare because it's not the way to get promoted. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, it
1: worked out in your case, though, right? I mean, you are the chair of an economics department. It's worked out in my case. It has. uh, uh, But it's not something we typically tell our graduate students to do. We say, pick something, stay focused on it, kill till it's dead and move on to the next thing. (laughs) So what is the more normal path for choosing topics to research for an economist
0: if it's not something like what you've done?
1: So typically, it's coming from your, your graduate studies and what you do in your dissertation. A typical dissertation will have three chapters to it. They're all related in some way. And they produce kind of these three papers. So you come out hitting the ground running, ready to go, ready to submit your papers out, present to individuals. And it kind of makes your mark in the discipline.
0: Yeah. And I mean, do, do you think that economics would benefit from more people pursuing topics that were of personal interest to them, that it would perhaps make their own careers and their own lives, I guess, more fun, but also in terms of the quality of the research? Is, is that the way to go? Or how has your own thinking on this been influenced by your personal experiences as an economist?
1: The one thing I love about economics is that it gives you a set of tools to study people interacting with one another. And for me, there's the common questions that you chase, right? Like what's the effect of education on wages? Those are the the big questions in life. But I was able to kind of move that lamppost into my own life and and see how it affected things that were going around me and made me so much more connected to what's going on. And given that I'm already an economist from an underrepresented group, I think it also gives the discipline a different way of looking at life because it's not something they're they're used to seeing, at least someone from my background.
0: Yeah, for for context here, uh, you are a Latino economist. You are formerly the president of the American Society of Hispanic Economists as well. And economics, as you well know, doesn't do great when it comes to underrepresented groups. In other words, these are groups that are underrepresented in a lot of um, in a lot of professions in the U.S. economy. But economics is really, really bad about this. And I'm wondering if that also has influenced the ways that you've gone about choosing the kind of economic projects that you take on.
1: It does. It does. It makes me look for whose voice is not out there. What population are we missing? And for me, it's been these populations that sometimes is out in rural America, since I'm out here in in Kentucky. Sometimes it's these smaller groups. So when I'm thinking about children with mental disabilities, that that drive me because I want to give them a voice. I want to give them an opportunity to to hear what's going on in their lives out to the greater public. Did you worry that when you decided
0: to pursue projects that were of personal interest, that possibly your career might be slowed down because of it, that if you'd chosen other topics that were I don't know, more timely or relevant or more in vogue within the profession, that that would have given you a faster path up the ladder. I'm just kind of curious to know if, if you thought that there would be a professional price to pay for, for having that freedom of choice.
1: There are always is a price to pay. I mean, yes, there are better questions to go after. But for me, it was something that was going to not just be a potential contribution to the literature, but it was also going to help me in my own personal life <laughs> and so yeah. I, I had a i already had a, a sense of a incentive to find the answer to some of these questions there were other things driving me besides the next publication and so it, it was a, a competition but it was one that, that i enjoyed it was one that uh, i wanted to to chase and luckily i found co-authors who who found some light in it as well
0: yeah that's great i'm just projecting here but there seems to be a kind of YOLO component to the way you've gone <laughs> about your career. Like, listen, I only have this one life. I have these tools that I've acquired as part of you know, becoming an economist. I have these skills that I've developed. I'm going to use them to answer the questions that are important to me and not just sort of let what's happening in the profession dictate things to me. Is that just me uh, projecting there or is there something to it?
1: There, there is something to that. I like. I, I try to avoid some of the really, really big questions out there because there's just so much competition. I did that in the beginning, and there I've had more than one or two papers. Uh, we we call them scooped when someone else writes the same exact paper just a month or two ahead of you. <laughs> oh, I'm
0: familiar with the concept as a journalist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, you know, when you chase that those types of papers, those big ideas, you're going to have a whole lot of competition. And there's still so much low-hanging fruit out there when it comes to questions. I mean, we're in the market of ideas. And the hardest thing to go and do out there is ask a question no one's asked before. And so that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to see if, if there were any of these unsolved questions left. I, I used to joke and call them uh, these taboo economics, things that people want to know about, but they don't want to put their name on it and write about it.
0: <laughs> oh, so you you say, the hell with that. I will put my name on it and I will go for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, if a younger version of you, like somebody who reminds you of a younger you, one of your grad students, say, comes to you and says, hey, uh, you know, Professor Fernandez, like I, I know what's popular in the profession now. I know what you know, all the all the jobs that I'm applying for are asking of me, but I really want to just have a career where I'm pursuing the stuff that matters to me, even if there is a professional price to pay or even if it does take me longer to climb the ladder. What do you say to that person? Do you give them like the, the risk-averse advice and say, no, just get something published and then choose your stuff later? Or do you say, yeah, go for it, like life's
1: too short? I, I tell them I have a little bit of both. You You have to you have to publish, all right? The, the publish and perish is real. When you can make it on the opposite side of tenure, it opens up your avenues to so many more possibilities and you're, you're willing to take on those risks. So, so I don't go ahead and say, hey, yeah, just do what you want. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that's good advice. Uh, I, I do think you have to uh, play the game, but where you can, put in some of your own personality, where you can try to, to go after these questions and really sell the reader on the why. Like, why should they care? You you really need to sell them on the why. why. Why should they spend their time reading the next 20 pages that you have in there? Why is this important to their life, especially when they may not immediately identify with it?
0: Yeah. Do you think sometimes, though, that if you yourself are really enthusiastic and interested in a topic, that even if you're not exactly sure the why of it, you suspect that there's a lot of other people who are just like you and that your enthusiasm and your interest will just translate into better work and it'll find an audience that's appreciative of it. You know what I mean? Because sometimes it's a little hard to say in advance, well, why is it that people are going to really like this until you've actually done the thing? Because you just don't know what the outcome's going to be. You don't know how good it's going to be. You don't know how widespread the interest is. But sometimes you, you kind of just got to take a chance, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to bet on yourself. All right, you're the ones who went ahead it got tooled up and and did it you still have to bet your bet on yourself when this happens the thing is is that you still got to go after topics that you have some passion for you don't want to write about things just to write about stuff you, you need to write about things that mean either something to you or they solve some type of world question something that the world wants to know you know like right now how can we make batteries last longer? Everyone wants to know that <laughs> <laughs> as we go in the future. How can we uh, get rid of uh, these high gas prices? Things, things of that nature. You need to still chase those questions, but you got to put your own spin on it. You can't just regurgitate what other people have done. You have to differentiate yourself somehow. and And sometimes it comes from your background. Would you describe
0: your economics career as more fun because you've, pursued these topics of personal interest or more satisfying might be the right words or more of a struggle like what what are some what are some ways that you would describe your experience of being a, an economist in the context of the work that that you've been able to do and that has this and that you have this personal connection to I would definitely say more fun now post tenure <laughs> <laughs> post tenure so were you were you just like freaking out before tenure about whether or not uh, you'd be able to continue this kind of work, or whether or not others would find it sort of worthy of granting you
1: tenure so that you could keep doing it. Here's what I'll tell you. The publication process is odd because you go about, you do this research, and you get to this point while you're doing your research where you have now found a piece of knowledge, and you're the only person in the world that knows that knowledge. And that, that's the fulfilling part. That's the part that, that makes you excited, that makes you get up to, to do this work. But then the tough part comes because now you have to explain that new idea to everyone else and convince them that's something new. Yeah. <laughs> right? New and true. So, something that's right. New and true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so then going through the publication process, the sense that you get when you get that acceptance is not the sense of joy, but almost a sense of relief. Yeah when you get
0: published in an economics journal, you mean? Just to explain to our listeners, when you say the publication process, research in economics is usually submitted to an economics journal. And then there's a group of referees or judges or whatever they're called that will go through it. They'll ask you questions. Sometimes they'll ask you to revise your work. And then ultimately, they'll the journal will decide whether to publish it or not. And if it's published, then that's like a big deal. You can say, hey, I'm now a published economist. This has been accepted by an economics journal. And then that is considered to be something that's a big deal because it's gone through the peer review process. Uh, and it's sort of, it's like a stamp of legitimacy on the rigor of the work itself. But that's that's pretty harrowing too, because this process can actually take a very long time, like years in some cases, right?
1: Yes, my dissertation took years, <laughs> <laughs> years. I had kids in between when I first wrote the paper, and when it was finally published.
0: Yeah, do you find that now that you have tenure, now that you're something of a name within the profession, that this moves along a little bit more quickly because you already are published, and so people will be maybe a little bit more quick to respond to you and, and to referee your paper
1: at the journals, is that is that how it works more or less? I would like to believe I've just become a better writer. <laughs> That's what I would like to believe. I would I would hope it's not the former, like you like you said. Yeah. Uh, uh, that would mean there was too much of an in-club then. But uh, I, I hope believe it is that I'm a better writer now. And, and given that I'm a better writer, it's, it, it goes through the process a lot faster. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Could be both too, right? It could be that, of course, you've been an economist for a while now. So you're a better economist than you were when you just started out. But also because of that, you're known inside the profession. So maybe the in-club, so to speak, will be more quick to like accept or at least like start to the process of, you know, accepting one of your papers uh, because that that in-club, that is one of the big criticisms of the economics profession
1: is that it is too much of an in-club. Uh, do you agree with that more or less? Yes. I mean, I, I've had it happen to me. I've had a paper where I submitted it two or three times with one of my undergraduate students. And. It it got rejected, rejected all this time. So I was getting a little frustrated. And I sent the paper to someone who was a, a leading expert in the area. This was organ donations. And I sent it to him. He looked it over. He changed the introduction and the conclusion. Nothing else, nothing. So none of the results, none of the data, all the tables were the same. Bibliography was essentially the same. And then we sent it to another journal. I asked him... Could we put your name on it? And he's like, but, you know, I didn't do much. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> I, you've done enough. And it was the fastest experience I ever <laughs> had with an economics journal.
0: Oh, uh, That's interesting. So it's like if you get somebody who's well known inside that area of specialization and you just like put the name on it, that itself is kind of an interesting experiment, too, is what would happen if people see the name versus if they're only judging it all like based on the work. Because it's the same exact work, except that now it had this dude's name on it who was well-known, right? That was a little mini-experiment of its
1: own that you kind of ran there. It, it, it was a little mini-experiment. I, I said, look, I've been having trouble selling the idea. Maybe those little words you changed in the introduction mattered. Maybe they were the ones that did it. They got us over the hump. Uh, but it, it was really shocking to me when it went so quickly through after being bounced before. All right, well,
0: let's turn now to some of your papers and the findings in them. And I want to start with a paper titled Rising Autism Prevalence Real or Displacing Other Mental Disorders. And let me give listeners the quick background to the paper because the background itself is interesting, and then we'll get into it. Uh, back in 1970, the prevalence of autism in kids was 0.5 kids out of every thousand kids had autism. By 2010, so four decades later, almost 15 kids out of every 1,000 had autism. So that is almost a 30-fold increase in autism. And what some people have been wondering was, well, is that increase really happening or is it that the autism was there all along, but in the past it had been diagnosed as something else? It had been diagnosed as a different mental or developmental disorder of some kind, and so that's what you were studying in this paper. Was rising autism a real trend or was the perceived rise in autism actually just a change in how it was categorized? Or perhaps was it some combination of the two, right?
1: Right, right. Uh, especially now when that number that you just quoted, it's now at 23 out of every thousand. Oh, wow. So it's even higher so, than it was back then. Yeah, of course. It's, it's even higher. And the reason I we went over this particular question was my, my oldest son is is on the spectrum. He's autistic. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking, you know, why why don't we know more? Why why don't we have more resources? Why 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 can't anyone answer any of my questions? So I, I wanted to find a way that I could give back. I wanted to find a way that even though I'm not a medical doctor, how can I help out my son? And this was the question to do it. And the way we went about it is we said, look, if autism is just displacing other types of intellectual disabilities that are out there, then we shouldn't see an increase in the number of speech pathologists or an increase in number of occupational therapists or things of that nature that would typically help out people on the spectrum
0: right because if there really is a rising prevalence of autism you would expect demand for speech pathologists and these other kinds of auxiliary public health providers uh, to increase correct
1: that's right yeah. and so with demand going up we should see their wages start going up we should see more of them starting to appear because they're gonna to want to supply their services to these children to these adults in some cases coming through And so we went out, we got a bunch of data from California, which has awesome health data that's available out there. And we were able to look at how autism improved over time, or in this case increased, starting from the early 2000s, through to 2010. And we looked at it in comparison to other types of intellectual disability. And so uh, back then it was called uh, mental retardation, but the updated version of it is Intellectual disability or developmental disorder of some sort, and so we look to see by how much did autism increase or decrease relative to those groups. Now, one thing that a lot of people might not realize is that intellectual disability or what we used to classify as MR actually is going down during this period. It was kind of a puzzle. Mm. It's like, well, you know, what, what's going on here? Uh, and and they tried to come up with all types of reasons for it, and so. Uh, Somehow, the release of cable TV <laughs> increased autism and and decreased uh, um, MR. That that wasn't found so. Out so to be people true. were just kind uh, of throwing stuff out
0: there. Uh, a lot of like popular write ups of societal trends, and then trying to connect two things where the data just didn't show that kind of causal effect, right?
1: It, it just it it didn't pan out. It just didn't show that type of effect. Right. So what we did was we said, well, what if what if people are just switching diagnoses? And and that's what you start to see happening with autism, particularly among mild intellectual disabilities. You start to see the switch in autism. And in the paper, we're able to show that about a third of the increase in autism that we've seen is really just diagnostic substitution. They were just flipping the labels. Uh, and it could be that you know, it's not going to sound all that great, but maybe some people preferred that label over the other label, and mm-hmm. uh, so they were essentially looking for this other form of diagnosis that was coming through. But still, if if only a third was due to this diagnostic change, then the rest of it was real. Yeah, there was a real increase in the number of autistic cases relative to all the other forms of intellectual disability that you can find in an eight-year-old. And we we're seeing it happen in the market. We were seeing wages go up for speech pathologists. We were seeing wages go up for occupational therapists. We saw more of them coming into the uh, profession. And we didn't see it happening across all medicine. So we tried and tested it against things like, um, well, are uh, chiropractors going up? No. So it's not like an increase of health insurance or an increase of health spending. Uh, So chiropractors weren't going up, dentists weren't going up. Um, None of those other off issues were increasing. But when you looked at these specific auxiliary groups, you saw an increase in their numbers. You saw an increase in their wages. And they were all occurring in the areas where the autism rate was going up.
0: Okay, so to sum up this paper then, about a third of the increase in autism prevalence was in fact a kind of switching of those diagnoses. So that autism had already been there, but before it was being labeled something else. But that also means that two thirds, roughly, of this astonishing rise in autism actually is happening. Uh, It's fascinating. Let's go now to the next paper of yours that I want to look at. And this one is titled, how Children with Mental Disabilities Affect Household Investment Decisions. So this is a paper that uh, you co-authored with an economist named Vicky Bogan, and she and I actually discussed it on The New Bazaar previously, but I, I want to just take another very quick look at it again because the results are so interesting and a little bit counterintuitive, and so I, I just want to like bring it up again. I, I'd love to, to ask your thoughts on it now. So you looked essentially at the financial decisions made by parents of kids with mental disabilities and how
1: risky their
0: portfolios were. Uh, So what did you find?
1: And so in that paper, we wanted to see how does a a household, a set of parents make this really hard decision. You, You want to help your kid, but you don't know whether you should help them now or help them later. And, you know, that kind of sounds kind of odd. Well, think about it this way. Any dollar that I spend on special education for my son, any dollar that I spend on therapies for my son now is a dollar I'm not saving that could be used for him later on, that could be used for him when I'm no longer around, that could be used for him so that someone can take care of him in his adulthood. And so it's, it's a real hard question. Yeah. <laughs> Do I make the investments now on at that time, unknown therapies, meaning unknown in the sense that we don't know how good they're going to be, what the returns are to them. Will he be uh, fully functional uh, for in society that is, in order to earn income and, and keep his uh, standard of living, or do I need to save now to prepare for that future? So it, it was a tough choice. So we when we we looked at this. A panel survey of income dynamics. It's a great data set. You get to watch the same family for just years upon years, generations. You get to see all types of purchases they make. So what type of home they bought, what type of car they bought, how much they invested in the stock market bonds, you name it, right? And we collected all that information about these households. And we also collected some health information about their children. Mm. And so we got to see whether they had autism, intellectual disability, some type of a seizure disorder, all these things that could affect their progress in school, if you will, it could potentially affect what's gonna to happen to them in the future out in the labor market. And what we found probably not surprising was that if you had a child with some form of special needs, you were less likely to participate in the stock market. And a lot of people don't realize most of America does not participate in the stock market. Uh, at least uh in an independent fashion you might have something over in a 401k but a lot of people do not
0: i think even even if i'm if i'm up to date on the latest research on that it's like barely more than half of all americans participate in the stock market even including pensions and 401k plans and other kinds of retirement vehicles and even for those who do participate in the stock market it's very heavily skewed towards the people who have a lot of money they really dominate you know the majority of investments in the stock market Uh, it is another sort of sign of inequality in the country and a particularly stark one i think
1: oh yeah no i totally agree the the fact that you see Fewer of those households participate in the market probably isn't too surprising, right? You're getting hit with these extra health expenses. But if you did participate in the market, those households with special needs children were much more aggressive than the typical household, meaning that they were more likely to invest in stocks rather than bonds, rather than things that are safer. Uh, So what we think is happening there is that those families who are able to they were the ones who were trying to be more aggressive about the future of the child in terms of uh, financial assets. Right, just to,
0: to spell that out even more, If you're investing in riskier assets like the stock market rather than less risky assets like the bond market, it's because you're anticipating that those risky assets will give you a bigger return over time. So if you are fortunate enough to have some money left over to invest in the financial markets and you do have a special needs child, then you're going to hope that the money you invest gives you a bigger payout later in the future so that you have more money to take care of that child when the child has grown up uh, into an adult um, and possibly even to outlast your own life so that the, that the child has something in adulthood um, to take care of them if, in fact, they have the kind of you know special needs that, that's going to last a lifetime and, and might hamper
1: their own ability to make money as adults, Right. Yeah, that's right. And states have started to pay attention to these types of situations. Uh, I'm sure uh, some of your listeners will be very familiar with 529 plans for people who are saving towards college. Well, you know that might not be a, a reality for, for some of these uh, children. So states have started to create a 529-like plan, if you will, for people with some type of uh, intellectual disability where parents can invest in it today and help provide income for their kids tomorrow and still through an investment transaction. So like here in Kentucky, we have these things called ABLEs accounts. Uh, And the the lovely thing about them is that they don't count as income per se for the person once they become an adult, so they can still qualify for social services. Uh, So things like Medicaid, for example.
0: Yeah, all kinds of uh, potential policy implications of a finding like this. Um, I want to move on now to a paper that you did that's titled, The Effects of Pill Mill Legislation on Suicides. And this is also a topic uh, to which you have a very personal connection. And you you shared with me before our chat today that your grandmother died via suicide uh, in Cuba. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there's a backstory to your research on suicide as well, because you have done... Multiple papers on this topic, uh, in addition to your papers on autism and
1: on healthcare. I, I try to contribute to an area knowing I'm not a medical doctor. I try to find a way for us to still be able to improve the lives of individuals, uh, even though I'm not on the medicine side of it. Mm-hmm. And w- when it came when it came to suicide, um, my family's been touched directly by it, uh, and we've also been touched indirectly by it. Uh, I've had friends that, um, unfortunately, have uh, lost their life uh, via suicide. Uh, I I have friends who've lost their own family members via suicide. So I wanted to see, was there a way that I could contribute to the idea of reducing the number of suicides? And a lot of people find themselves in despair. A lot of people find themselves lonely. Uh, a lot of people find themselves with almost no way out, and yet there's a lot of people around them that would be willing and able to help them along the way. And so is there a way that we can put in a policy to, to just stop those types of ideations, which is tough. It's tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just to put things in context, a lot more people die from suicide each year than from car accidents. Um, when I talk to my students who are all uh, eighteen to twenty somethings, I tell them right away in the rooms, like you know, the things that kill you are all things on the outside. It's homicide, accidents, and suicide. Mm-hmm. Those are the three things, and suicides first. Yeah, and suicides
0: are also one of the so-called deaths of despair that's been studied by, for example, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, where they look at they look at suicides, they look at death by alcohol-related causes and death by uh, drug overdoses. And, of course, these things are all somewhat interconnected. They're connected to this idea that there has been a rise in despair in the U.S. and, and possibly other parts of the world as well, I'm not sure, um, over the last few decades. And so your paper, The Effects of Pill Mill Legislation on Suicides, is an attempt to look at a policy and its effect on the prevalence of suicide. So let's let's talk about it. Uh, let's start with the definition, though. A uh, Pill mill. Um, what exactly is that? And then we'll talk about pill mill laws and, and the findings of your paper.
1: Sure. So a pill mill is a clinic for which people go due to pain, usually some type of unobserved pain. A lot of uh, cancer patients will go and receive pain medication from what are sometimes called these uh, pain clinics, although the societies call them these pill mills. So,
0: and by the way, they go to get prescriptions for pain relieving drugs, right?
1: That's correct. Yes, they're going to get pain prescription drugs. What pill mill legislation does is that it actually puts limits on how many prescriptions a particular patient can receive. It sometimes puts limits on who can run a pill mill. So, so not all of these are actually run by physicians, for example. It puts restrictions upon the number of pills that can be dispensed during any one of these um, prescriptions that goes through. So it's a way of limiting the number of pain medications that are going out in a specific area.
0: Okay. And you've looked at the introduction of these pill mill laws in different states, I think. And what did you find? Were they
1: effective and just how effective if so? The backdrop to this is that this is all during that opioid epidemic right? that we're still kind of living in. It's a bit uh, COVID-covered, uh, but it's still in there. And it's not just pill mill legislation that's being passed over this time. You also have medical marijuana that's being passed over this time. You also have these uh, mandatory prescription systems where physicians have to check the database to see whether or not you have been prescribed or not. So a lot is going on over the same time period trying to prevent opioid overdoses. What we do is we refocus this idea and say, well, how do those policies affect something else? In this case, suicide. And the idea that suicide could be particularly affected by these policies comes from two different audiences. Uh, One audience says, hey, if you restrict my pain medication, I'm going to be experiencing that pain a lot more often. If I'm experiencing that pain a lot more often, is, is life worth living? So maybe by restricting all those pain medications, I'm actually inducing more suicides. And that was an argument that was made on the legislative floor in in Florida when they were considering pill mill laws. On the opposite side, I'm making these drugs more readily available whenever these pill mills are in existence. If I make them more readily available, it also means I can make suicide via drug more readily available. Mm. And so you have kind of these, these two opposing uh, effects that could come from either keeping them or closing them. So we needed an empirical uh, way of resolving this ambiguity between the two effects. Right.
0: Because those theories, by the way, I should say that both of those theories sound plausible. But what we're studying here is an empirical question. We don't just throw up our hands and say, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. We can actually try to see what the net overall effect is of the legislation. This is an answerable question. That seems to be the point that you're making in doing this paper, right, is we can actually look at this and
1: make a determination on which of those effects is more dominant. That's correct. Yeah. And so so that, that's what we end up doing. We look to see how suicides are affected by the introduction of these pill mill laws in those states relative to their own past, right? So right before the laws were passed. And what you tend to find is that the overall suicide rate does seem to drop a little bit, somewhere between two to three percent. And when you look specifically at drug-related suicides, you find a much more significant fall when it comes to The change in the rate, depending on the model, between 4% to 8%. What we found even more interesting was that it was primarily among women who more often than not choose pills to to commit suicide, and also it was among the older group of individuals. We're talking about this uh, 45 to 63-year-old group. These were the types of people that fell down, hurt themselves somehow, and now need some type of pain medication. <laughs> and so you, you saw the exact group that you would have expected to be receiving the pain medication be affected by the pill mill laws. So it wasn't coming from a bunch of young adults. It wasn't coming from a bunch of um, elderly senior citizens in our data set. It was coming specifically from, if you will, these uh, moms and dads in these older groups that were participating in those uh, pain markets.
0: So it, so it sounds like you were not super surprised by your findings in this paper, is that right?
1: No, no, I, I, w- I wasn't surprised that there was gonna be an effect. I wasn't sure about the direction, to be honest. I wasn't sure about the direction, because you. I mean, that argument of I'm taking away pain medication from people who could really be using it, I mean, that could drive someone over, and yeah. it only takes a little bit of a suicidal ideation to commit to suicide. And so I, I wasn't really sure which way the direction would go, and, and that, that's what brought the interest, right? Um, but afterwards, like obviously, a lot of these uh, good pieces of research, the, the answer almost seems obvious. After the fact, you, you see this reduction coming specifically from this group. Now, the, the one thing that could be happening in there, this wasn't the backdrop of the opioid epidemic. It could be that the reduction in suicides that we observed is only a reduction because the people ended up overdosing on something yeah. else. So they're just classified differently. We, we don't know that for sure.
0: The next paper I want to talk to you about is a paper that actually cuts across a few different points of personal interest for you. So It's titled Hurricane Maria and La Crisis Boricua on Healthcare Supply in Puerto Rico. So you have family in Puerto Rico, so does your wife. And as you noted before, your wife is a physician, and this is about physicians who had been leaving Puerto Rico. And it's about the impact of a really devastating hurricane, Hurricane Maria, which was a Category 4. It knocked out power. In Puerto Rico for a very long time, weeks, I think months even. And you were essentially looking at the effects of that hurricane on how many uh, healthcare providers remained on the island, keeping in mind that there already had been a lot of healthcare providers who were leaving the island for other reasons, partly related to the economic situation before the hurricane. So you had kind of a tricky methodological challenge here in trying to figure out how much worse the hurricane made it. Is that roughly an accurate characterization of, of the paper?
1: That That is an accurate characterization of the paper. You, you hit it spot on. It, you're talking about Puerto Rico that was going through an economic crisis. Um, Puerto Rico used to be a haven for manufacturers because they could circumvent some of the tax law that was there. And during the Clinton era, they started to phase out some of those tax advantages. Uh, With that meant that you had a lot of manufacturing companies start to leave. Though usually the ones that stayed were lots of the pharmaceutical companies that were very plentiful in Puerto Rico. And so The Hurricane Maria comes through, and and you know the the word hurricane comes from Puerto Rico, right?
0: Uh, I did not know that, no. Yeah,
1: so the Taino Indians, which were the the native Indians of -hmm. of Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, in the Caribbean, they uh, feared a god called Huracán. And in Puerto Rico, they thought that their local god called El Yunque uh, was the one that protected them from Huracán. Which is hurricane, right? Yeah, uh, and El Yunque is actually the the big mountain that sits in Puerto Rico in the rainforest. <laughs> so
0: I, I did not know anything about the etymology of the word hurricane, and I certainly didn't know that it came from Puerto Rico. That's fascinating.
1: And so, uh, so anyway, this uh, this big devastating uh, cap four, Category Four hurricane comes in on the um, southern eastern side of the island and just goes right through the center of it and and makes it a a pretty devastating event. I didn't hear from my own family in Bayamón, Puerto Rico, for uh, several days, three, four days, before we finally got some contact with them. My wife, on the other hand, who's um, from Añasco, Puerto Rico, she didn't hear from them for about two weeks. And in fact, uh, the military was airdropping stuff into that area because they couldn't get access to the area after the hurricane, yeah, uh, and so you know, again, trying to figure out a way to to contribute, to find a way to uh, to help, besides just sending supplies and money, uh, we wanted to answer this question, and there was a lot of things that were going on. The economy was just tanking. You had people leaving the island, trying to make a better future for themselves in, in on the mainland because they're they're all U.S. citizens, so it's free transport back and forth. And then you see the government trying to pass policies to keep them there. And one of the policies was a very, very favorable tax situation for Puerto Rican doctors. Uh, Basically, you, you got your like loans forgiven, you didn't have to pay taxes on something like the first uh, $100,000 that you earned. And then the tax that you had to pay after that was very minimal. It, they were incredible tax advantages, if yeah, you were to say.
0: Really boosting incentives to try to keep healthcare providers on the island.
1: And so I wanted to see, well, did that make a difference? Did that help in the recovery? Did that help in the way? And instead, no, you, you find a pretty uh, devastating loss, particularly in the areas that the, the hurricane hit, both with healthcare workers as well with healthcare establishments. So we, we saw very large losses. Now, the way we did it was we used a, a simulated method. And so what we do is we make a fake Puerto Rico using poor counties in the United States. And we say, okay, how many of um, those counties have doctors, the number of establishments that they have there, so on and so forth. And we use those counties and basically put some weights on them so they mimic Puerto Rico up until the point of the hurricane, All right? So once the hurricane hits, we use those fake counties to predict how Puerto Rico would have continued had there been no hurricane, and then compare that to what actually happened. Uh, yeah, and when you when you do that, you see um, losses between ten to fifteen percent in in establishments, which which are huge, and that was even two years after the hurricane.
0: Yeah, and in terms of family physicians, you found that the number of family physicians fell by seventeen and a half percent. That's like one out of every six family physician leaving the island. I mean, that is, if you were to scale that up to, I don't know, you know, a large country like the U.S. or something, you would think of this as just an unbelievable and devastating exodus of medical talent, but also like medical provision, you know, people who are really necessary on the island. And I don't know that that was just a very that was a very depressing, but a very important result at the same time.
1: In an already underserved area, almost the entire island of Puerto Rico, with the exception of, uh, I believe, two municipalities, is classified as a medically underserved area by uh, the CDC. And so it was already, before before the hurricane, it was already all an MUA, and it only got worse after the fact. Uh, And what makes that rather interesting or... You know, difficult is that with the exodus meant you had an aging population because most of the people who stayed were older and Puerto Ricans actually Puerto Ricans tend to live quite long but they they live with lots of extra comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension things of that nature so they you know you need to have your medical physicians there to help that population along
0: how did you process that finding personally i mean once you
1: arrived at it well, my, back to my wife, she's a, a family medicine <laughs> physician. And mm-hmm. so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, w- what's going to happen, particularly to the people out in the rural areas? In, in the metros, yeah, they, they get hurt, but the, there's, the markets are strong enough to bring at least physicians to those large metro areas. But out in the country meant that they were traveling much further in order to see a physician which probably meant they were going to see physicians a lot less and meant that other types of ailments would last much longer than they needed to.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's very sad, but but it also puts into kind of stark relief just how awful that hurricane was and, and what a terrible effect it had on the island because, of course, you're just looking at one sliver of the population and of the economy you know, if if you extend that to other parts of the economy as well, it's just a, a massive and, and really tragic outflow of talent, you know? I
1: agree. I agree.
0: And our last paper that we're going to discuss is a contribution of an analysis that you made to the latest kind of annual report from the American Society of Hispanic Economists. And the topic of this piece of analysis you did is colorism among Hispanic households. And to just briefly explain to the audience what colorism is, this is the idea that within the Hispanic population, of course, there are Hispanics of different races as well. But the data are not great for how Hispanics of different races um, actually do in the economy. But you were curious to see the extent to which outcomes, for example, between black Hispanics and white Hispanics would also track the disparities between, um, for instance, white Americans and black Americans. And uh, yeah, so you you did this analysis. And
1: uh, why don't you take us through a, a couple of the conclusions that you found? Sure. So when you think about in the U.S., there's a well-established you know, wage gap between black and white. There's a well-established health insurance gap, a health gap. So I wanted to extend that over to Hispanics because sometimes mm. people think of Hispanics as this kind of one big monolithic group. right? And in actuality, they all come from these different immigration stories and they mm-hmm. came at different times and they came in different colors as well. And so I wanted to bring kind of the data to bear to say, do we observe the same types of gaps, if you will, within Hispanics? Do we observe those same wage gaps? And what you tend to find is that black Hispanics tend to get treated a lot like black Americans or African Americans when you look at the data. Uh, But white Hispanics tend to be somewhere in between those two groups on a lot of metrics. There are some exceptions along the way, but on a lot of the metrics, they tend to be in between. One of the surprising things that people might not realize is that uh, Hispanic households have gone from immigrant-heavy group to a U.S.-born group. So the majority of Hispanics, they are, are U.S.-born, and so they, they are citizens. They're, they're part of our, our country, part of this melting pot, and they have if you will, contributed the most to uh, diversity of color as well, because they tend to have mixed-race marriages, they tend to have uh, marriages across different uh, Hispanic countries, as well as across other groups, other socioeconomic groups. And when we were looking at the data, we found that when you look at wages, the wages for, for white Hispanics, even having lower education than some African-Americans, was still in between the two groups, Mm -hmm. so between uh, white Americans and uh, African Americans. You saw about the the same outcome for black Hispanics. Now, there are some small advantages that are there that might be due to selection, and what I mean by that is you have people who immigrate to the U.S., they, they tend to do so because they think they are going to be successful if they get here and that might be for certain countries the wealthier people are coming over Um, so panamanians tend to do quite well once they come to the u.s and they also tend to be from a darker complexion than some of the other hispanic nations and so you see them kind of move those numbers upwards within that particular cell yeah but then you have other countries like the Dominican Republic, you know, Washington Heights over in New York, <laughs> that uh, that are, are more of an immigrant nature, working class group, and that is just trying to chase that American dream. And so you have these different stories that, that are occurring here, uh, and that is playing a role in how we view Hispanics over time.
0: Yeah, there, there's a very interesting finding in your analysis as well, which is about the role of education. So, for example, you mentioned that black Hispanics tend to have a higher unemployment rate and lower incomes than white Hispanics. And when looking at inequality or or inequity, a lot of times some folks will say, well, if you just adjust for education, then the inequity would go away. But what you found was that actually... If anything, black Hispanics are slightly more educated than white Hispanics. So that can't possibly be the explanation here. And I just found that to be really interesting. I hadn't seen that observation before. Uh, And I'm wondering if you were also surprised by that discovery as
1: well. I was surprised by that discovery as well. It, It kind of stood there stark. It kind of said, well, now how can we deny that there is an issue here? Here we are accounting for education and yet we still see this employment gap, yet we still see this income gap.
0: Yeah, I find this topic super fascinating as well because it cuts across so many deep and often confusing questions about identity And here you're looking at, for example, black Hispanics and white Hispanics and their relative outcomes. But of course, there's also a lot of Hispanics who come from indigenous backgrounds. There is a lot of Hispanics who come from mixed race backgrounds. And of course, in the U.S., there's a lot of Hispanics who might be very fair skinned and would sort of, I think, maybe even self-identify as white, but who don't quite feel like they are in the same category as white Americans. They just don't code that way. They don't feel quite comfortable saying, yeah, I'm white. They'd rather say, I'm Hispanic, even though one is a race and the other is an ethnicity. So like this is a very tricky thing to study as well because you have so many different categories and you don't have a lot of great data that disaggregates amongst those categories. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, you actually see it in the 2020 census. So if you look back to the 2010 census versus the new 2020 census, uh, pretty strong up until 2018 or so, you find that 80% of Hispanics would label themselves as white when having uh, to choose a race. The moment you go from um, 2018 to 2020, that number falls dramatically. In fact, uh, 68% chose something other than white for the 2020 census. And so when you hear about this like increase uh, racial diversity that's occurred, a lot of it is being driven by this now largest ethnic minority group Mm -hmm. in the US. All right.
0: Well, uh, Jose, this has been a great conversation and I'd love to close by just kind of asking you about what's next potentially. Uh, so much of your research agenda has focused on your own personal interests. And I refuse to believe that you have exhausted those personal interests. Uh, I happen to know, for example, that you're a baseball fan. I know that, uh, like me, you're a fan of mixed martial arts and that you do jujitsu. So maybe there's something in the sports economics realm. I don't know. What, what do you think uh, are some topics that you'd be interested in studying in the future that maybe you haven't gotten around to just yet?
1: Oh, I, I still have topics to do with uh, with special needs kids. I, I still got topics to do with suicide. Uh, so that there, there's still a lot of work to be done there. I haven't really thought about how to put in mixed martial arts into it. I will tell you, I use research to pick jujitsu. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah.
0: Economics research or like different kinds of... Uh different kinds of other research like what what was your what was your strategy for choosing jiu-jitsu cuz long long time ago i chose muay thai and i did a little bit of grappling but i ended up kind of staying away from it just because there wasn't enough time to do both and i knew i wasn't going to go pro or anything <laughs> so i'm curious to know why did you choose jiu and not
1: some other martial art Oh, I, 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 my respect for you, which was already high, has only gone higher <laughs> with Muay Thai because that is a discipline where, uh, your your best defense is a better offense. <laughs> like, I, I know,
0: <laughs> and I and I have the uh repeatedly cracked ribs to to show my lack <laughs> of defensive, uh, my lack of defensive skill. My offense is definitely better. But what 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 led you to choose uh jujitsu instead of um you know something else?
1: Sure. So. And the story goes like this. Uh, I wrestled in high school, so I knew I wanted something grappling, and I was looking at judo, I was looking at MMA, I was looking at uh, jiu-jitsu. And what led me to jiu-jitsu was the fact that it has the lowest injury rate <laughs> relative to all the other ones, oh. even though you still spar live, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize. With with a lot of martial arts, not all of them, but with a lot of martial arts, we don't tend to spar live that often because of all the potential injury that comes through it. Plus the head, the head trauma, which I can tell you I've accumulated more than I'm comfortable with, <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. So I, I, at first I thought judo was going to be the safer one. But it turns out when the art is how do you hit someone with a planet, uh, you uh, (laughs) usually get a lot more injuries, particularly to the ribs, uh, when it comes to to martial arts. Jiu-jitsu, on the other hand, you're already on the ground. And you are extending someone's limbs quite far. (laughs) But it's on them to tap. So they can make everything stop at any point in time. And the tap is a beautiful thing because it allows you to spar live, spar with a real aggressor coming at you and still end it with some type of safety. The other thing it does is if someone is unwilling to tap, particularly for chokes of that nature, you do have some moments of seconds where the person passes out before yeah. bad things happen. Uh, and so that it meant that I could train more often. I could train uh, against larger people, against smaller people. And not have to worry so much about me getting some type of freakish accident, uh, some type of injury. Whereas the other traditional martial arts tend to have a much higher injury rate. And you would think it's kind of the opposite, right? Where I'm constantly extending someone's limbs a little yeah. bit too far.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, if you do decide to uh, to shift into sports economics uh, at some point in the future, uh, let me know. I'd be I'd be fascinated to to keep up with. What you're doing, and um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff out there that's already being done right now, especially in the MMA realm, right? Yeah, there's yeah. all kinds of like ant, There's an antitrust lawsuit that's a massive deal right now. There's a great labor story there. But in any case, uh, yeah, Jose, thanks so much for uh, for the chat today. I really had a great time talking to you.
1: I always have a great time talking to you, Cardiff. This is a great way to reach out to everyone that's out there. Hopefully, they they got something out of it, and um, they're always welcome to contact me if uh, they have any questions.
0: Outstanding. All right. Thanks so much. All right. And that's our show for today. You can find a link to Jose's website in the show notes for this episode, where you can see more of his research. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keen. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at And we'll see you next week.